Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. You might know this guy from being a world champion triathlete and a great bloke, Craig Alexander. When he was a soccer player as a kid, wanted to play soccer, but ended up into triathlons and he tells his story and then into being the world champion and Hawaiian Ironman champion. So now let's jump in and listen to my chat with Craig. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. He's a world champion triathlete, and it's a warm welcome in Craig Alexander. How are you, mate? I'm good, Hoppo. How are you? Yeah, mate, going well. Back when you were growing up, you weren't growing up around the beaches. You grew up in the inner west, and uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I think I had a pretty normal upbringing, just like a lot of kids in Australia, played a lot of sports. But, yeah, I was nowhere near the coast. Obviously, I'm lucky to live in Cronulla now near the beach, Um it's a great lifestyle. My family love it. My kids are, are in nippers and everything. But uh, yeah, I was a little ways from the beach, so I sort of did other sports, mainly soccer. Soccer was my main sport growing up. I loved, I loved the game, and I still do. Actually, love to watch the Premier League in England, and you know, I follow Liverpool with my son. Been a big Liverpool fan ever since Craig Johnson played for them in the eighties. So, but yeah, that was my main. You'll, uh, you- You'll hate me, mate. I'm a Manchester United fan. <laughs> Actually, you'll hate me because we beat you 5-0 last weekend. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Yeah, but I dabbled in golf, tennis, a few years of water polo in high school. But yeah, but soccer was the main love. That's what I, you know, I played soccer, indoor soccer, summer soccer, whatever was on I played. And you played for 15 years, so that was really my introduction to sport. And I guess my... My sporting dreams really were, were all around being a professional footballer overseas. You know, as I mentioned, Craig Johnson, you know, soccer was, it, it's a big global sport and, you know, it was getting a lot of recognition here because of what he was doing in the Premier League. And, but uh, that, that was my, my, I guess, my sporting upbringing. I wasn't an endurance, an endurance athlete uh, as such until, until much later in life. But, you know, I think playing a lot of sports sets you up well for doing other things and, I mean, even these days, I know sports are a lot more specialised and there's a lot more junior pathways and they scout the talent a lot earlier and, and, and those are all good things. But I still, you know, in my opinion, I think it doesn't hurt. I think one of the reasons I went on to have whatever success I had was because I was, I guess, well-rounded, played some ball sports, skill sports, and, you know, it just develops that competitive fire in you. Now, how did you get into, I mean, you, you said you did a bit of everything in, in sport. Tell us a bit about, you know, when you came through as a, as a kid, did you, you did a bit of running and how did you get then into triathlon? Yeah, well, I always fronted up at the school athletics and cross-country carnivals and, you know, from my soccer training, we, you know, we trained at, at soccer at quite a high level. So even though it's different running, it's more sprinting, agility, I still think, you know, it laid a good foundation for me of aerobic fitness and, you know, I turn up to the athletics carnivals and usually do well at all the events sort of from 200 through to 1500 
And also at the cross country, I, I do pretty well and I'd make it through the different levels, zone, regional and, and make it to state each year. And it wasn't until I came up against the runners as such, the guys who trained where I'd sort of really meet my match. But it wasn't only that I, th- I, I must have had some sort of natural talent to it, but I think it just, my personality was attracted to it. I liked, a lot of the other kids didn't want to do the 400 or the 800 or even the cross country. I was sort of, I was always inspired to do it. I thought, you know, this would be a challenge. I'd be interesting. Can I run the 3K or the 4K? And what's it going to feel like? Am I going to make it? So I was always sort of up for that sort of challenge. And, you know, even coming towards the end of my soccer career, when I was at university, I was I was interested in those sorts of sports. I used to watch the Cool and Get a Gold on TV each year. I loved the Cool and Get a Gold ever since I saw the movie back in the early 80s with Grant Kenny and uh, Colin Frills and Tommy Burlinson running around in a pair of Speedos. So I used to look for the Cool and Get a Gold each year. And, you know, the Hawaiian Ironman sort of captured my imagination too at some point. I, I saw it on the wide world of sports. And it was interesting that those two events were, were usually on at about the same time in October. So I would watch them and you know, it was around that time, I guess the late 80s, early 90s, my soccer career was sort of fizzling out and triathlon was getting a lot of mainstream media in Australia because we had a few, you know, guns who were just killing it overseas. Greg Welsh, McKeeley Jones, they were winning races all over the place and, you know, it wasn't unusual to flick the telly on and, and see a race. I remember seeing, it's a famous race in the US Virgin Islands in the Caribbean, the St. Croix race on TV, seeing the Chicago triathlon on TV and there was also... You know, a lot of a lot of races were televised. Then we had a national series. I think I want to say it was sponsored by Daihatsu or Nike. And there were a lot of sort of crossover races that they used to put on swim run races with the surf Ironman and the triathletes. So I remember flicking the telly on one day and seeing one of those races. You know, it was I think it was Greg Welsh and Brad Bevan up against Scott Thompson, uh, Guy Andrews, and you know, in some exotic location. It might have been Hamilton Island or something. So I was always definitely interested. Again, I think it was something about those events that just appealed to me, how, how challenging they were. And, you know, you'd, you'd watch the gold and they'd often have to paddle, you know, down into the Southerly for 20-odd kilometres from, from, you know, the Gold Coast down to Coolangatta and then make their way back. And it was the same in Hawaii, mate. When I, when I flicked on the wide world of sports and I just saw those sort of iconic images of the trade winds blowing and the palm trees were sort of at right angles, that... It's just a barren landscape, the lava fields and the, the, the highway cut through the middle of it and these crazy athletes battling those conditions. It just, yeah, it just captured my imagination. And, you know, I was always interested in sports that you sort of had to master more than one discipline. So, you know, obviously Surf Ironman fit that bill, so did triathlon. And, you know, during the Olympic Games, I, I would always watch the decathlon. I used to love Daley Thompson, um, the great British athlete. You know, that guy, he had all that charisma um, used to get involved in all the banter with his competition and with the media, but, you know, would win the gold medal. So uh, I was always really interested in the decathlon as well. So I think something about all the different disciplines and having to combine them just interested me and it was sort of that's what drew me to the sport in the first place. And then what was your first triathlon? Once you thought, oh, look, I've got an interest in this sport, what was the first one? Yeah, it took a while. I mean, I, my soccer career fizzled out and – Usually that, that happens because you're just not quite good enough when you need to be. I lost a bit of passion for it as well at some point. I was at university studying to be a physio. I, I got a hernia. I had a hernia that I had to have surgically repaired. And I had, for the first time in my life, for the first time that I could remember, I couldn't do any sport for about three or four months. And 
I was just knocking about at uni, doing my studies, but also, you know, going to the uni bar and just doing what you do, you know, when you're at university, hiding out from the real world. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, and I just, I don't know, I just, I wouldn't say I lost my way, but I wasn't doing any exercise and it had always been such a big part of my life. I loved it. And I remember coming home late one night from the uni bar and my mum always, you know, faithfully used to cook, cook dinner for me. And I was just sitting there eating dinner and yeah, I'd been, I was, I was, I wouldn't, I was in a bit of a flat spot. I just, I was missing the sport, I think, and just sort of wandering aimlessly. And, and my mum must have sensed it because she just came out this night and said, you know, I think you need a tonic. You need to get, you need to start exercising again. You've always been so active. You just seem to be floundering around. And, you know, it's interesting because I'd been thinking the same thing. So I just, the next morning, actually, I got up and ran, ran five kilometers. And then I started running every second day, five or six kilometers, just upping the distance a little bit. And, you know, obviously that was the easiest sport for me because of my background in soccer and that's the one I'd done the most and most kids can run a little bit so and then that turned into you know me running to the local pool which was about two or three kilometers away swimming 1500 meters or 2k and then running home and then I guess the natural transition was I just I had I knew a few guys who were doing what we used to call biathlons and they used to be everywhere back in the mid 90s every beach had them you know they were just swim run races I think they call them aquathons now but you it was anywhere from a four, five, six hundred meter swim, sometimes a one one k swim, and a three, four, or five k run. So, I started doing a lot of those. Did some in the eastern suburbs, Clavelli, Coogee, Bondi. I remember doing one where we we ran first. We ran from Watson's Bay down to Bondi and then swam at Bondi. They had them at Manly Beach every Friday night, so I'd drive over there. I was still living in the western suburbs or the inner west and driving over, and uh, you just loved it. Loved just the the feeling of being fit and active and out there with you know all these other like-minded people pushing yourself sometimes there was big surf sometimes there was no surf sometimes it was windy it was it was always different and always challenging and and my best mate at the time or one of my good mates at uni he was a very accomplished cyclist sort of semi-pro level pro level and he used to do triathlons for cross training you know I was just always asking him about the sport and he said to me just one day, you know, you've, it seems like you've got the swim and the bike s- sorted out to some degree. So why don't I, I can help you get set up on a bike and just do them. He said, just jump in and do it. So, you know, it was, it was really, it happened that quickly. We went out on the Thursday, found a bike in the trading post, as they used to call it, that old newspaper. And I remember we drove from uni over to Balmain, looked at it. It was a, it was a terror. <laughs> it was a, just a clunk of <laughs> this big, heavy thing. But, you know, my mate said, it'll be good enough. So I forked out the 800 bucks and that was on a Thursday and then ended a race and did my first triathlon at Kernel two days later on the Sunday, three days later. So, and again, mate, I just, you know, when you're in those situations where it just feels right, like it was my first triathlon, yeah. but it kind of felt like I'd been doing it for years. It just felt so good. And I had no idea what I was, I had no clip in pedals as we call them now. I just had BMX pedals and I had these Reebok cross trainers on. You know, everyone was wearing wetsuits. I, I didn't have a wetsuit. I, I didn't have any, all the gear, but yeah, I just loved it. And, you know, I was, at the time I was 20 or 21. So the way triathlon worked back then was if you were 20 or under, you're in the junior category. So I, I, I raced as an amateur in the 20 to 24 age group. So that's how I started. I was never a junior. I just jumped straight into my, my age group. And I think I got third in that first race. And, you know, within 12 months, I was entering myself in the elite category of races 
so you just you're racing against everyone. It's like all the the better guys, better guys. So yeah, it wasn't long before I think it was ninety five. I got offered a so that was about ninety four, and then ninety five I got offered a professional license by the National Federation. They invited me to race in a World Cup race at the Opera House, which was part of the global circuit, the World Cup circuit, and. That was in October 95, and I finished eighth out of 110 guys. I consider that probably to be my first pro race. So, yeah, that was that was my introduction. And that would have been a great result for you, that eighth place, but it would have been some top-line competitors. Yeah, it was an amazing race. You know, uh, Brad Bevan, the great man, the great croc, as we used to call him, he won the race. Miles Stewart, who was another hero of mine, he finished second. You know, so, yeah, it was it was – it was an eye-opener to me because I was still in, I think, my third year of university. And I was, in my own mind, the furthest thing from being a, a professional athlete. I mean, you can be a professional athlete. I mean, I guess that means you race in the professional category, but it doesn't mean you're professional, you know. Like, these guys were hard and professional, seasoned races, and, but it was good. It was good. I got, to, I got to see where the level was at. I got to see these guys in the flesh rather than watch them on TV or, or read about them in magazines and... Yeah, but I was still so raw. I had no coach. I had, I was very inconsistent. Like you, you often are as a young athlete in an endurance sport. I, I had no reason. I mean, I got, I got eighth in that race and then I didn't get another World Cup start for 12 months. And my next one was in Auckland, New Zealand. And I finished fourth in that one. Miles won that one, Miles Stewart. The guy who got second actually went on to win an Olympic gold medal in triathlon. So I was in good company. But I could just as easily the next race get 38th as well. So I, I, I was very inconsistent as is often the case with a young athlete who's developing physically, but also just from an experience standpoint, you often you don't understand the things that you need to do consistently to give yourself the best chance in these races. And you're working all of that out. But yeah, they, they were great times. I mean, I just sort of jumped in at the deep end and went from there. When did you decide that, like, I want to be professional now? Was, was it from those couple of races? And then did you get a coach or did you... You know, go buy one of the, the best bikes and, and go from there. But it was interesting because it was a different sort of scene to what it is now. Now there's a lot of coaches and a lot of good coaches out there. But back then it wasn't, there weren't as, as many coaches. So I was just pulling sessions out of triathlon magazines. Two or three days a week I would drive from where I lived in Ashfield down to to the Sutherland Shire to train. There were big groups of great athletes training down there. You know, I could turn up and jump in a bike group with Greg Welsh, McKeeley Jones, a lot of the best athletes in the world, best triathletes and a lot of great runners and cyclists as well. So I would just sort of watch, observe what they did, try and emulate, ask a lot of questions. But I, di- I didn't have a coach and it wasn't through not trying. I did approach a few people, but a lot of the good coaches back then and they were just working with the National Federation. So they were working with the really top people. So yeah, I just sort of found my own way. I guess one thing, I mean, I get, you, you do make your own luck, but one thing that I, I guess I was lucky with was, you know, my physio degree. Uh, what, you know, part of what we learned was, you know, the principles of physiology and how the body works and basic principles of endurance training and all those things. So I was just utilizing everything that I was learning during the day in my training, doing a lot of reading and, I sort of just figured it out for myself, a little bit of trial and error, but I would, I would write a program of what I thought I needed to do and sort of ask around, and it wasn't too dissimilar to what a lot of the other people were doing. So, you know, I, got, I think I got a handle on it pretty quickly. So I was self-coached for a lot of my career, which 
has its perks, but like anything, you know, there's there's downsides to that too. I mean, I think having a great coach who gets to know you well, know your personality, know how to get the best out of you. And I mean, you know, a great coach doesn't just train you physically, but they help they help you emotionally and mentally and they're an advocate with you with the national governing body and, and all of those things. So but no, in those early days I was just I was kind of like a privateer, just doing it on my own, jumping into races where I could and to answer your question, though, I, I didn't, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I knew I was going to be a world champion. I, I didn't know that. I knew that I loved this sport. It, it sort of, I just had a passion for it straight away. I loved the training. You know, you're outdoors all the time in a lot of different environments. You know, sometimes we're swimming in the pool, a lot of open water swimming, great riding outdoors, you know, running, running on the track, running in the, in the national park, mixing it up. I just really loved the training how tough it was too, how challenging it was, but just each week, each month, seeing myself and feeling myself get fitter and uh, sort of making those improvements and those gains. So my only sort of, I mean, I dreamt of being a professional and making a career out of it and, you know, hopefully one day being a world champion, that was a dream. But the reality was I just was really sort of enamored with this sport and passionate about it and was was just going to dive into it all in um, and, and you know my only I guess motivator or, or goal was to to see you know to take it as far as I could to get the most out of myself that was sort of my underwriting motivation just to really see if I could squeeze every drop out of the limit and, and see what I was capable of because it it appeared that I had sort of a natural talent for this and I certainly had the love for it the passion so I just thought well yeah let's let's see where it goes in and then the obviously did become successful. So when did that start, the, the racing that you got more consistent to what you were previously? Yeah, mate, it's, I mean, one of the things, again, was very lucky. You know, I, I never considered myself an elite athlete like a lot of the guys I was racing. You know, when I thought of an elite endurance athlete, I thought of Ian Thorpe or Susie O'Neill or someone who did it all through high school and you could just picture their parents driving them to the pool in the morning, going again after school. I mean, that, that wasn't me. I played a different sport and I, and I always had this thought in my mind that I wasn't quite as good as the guys I was racing. I didn't have their pedigree, their background. I had a lot of catching up to do. So, But I guess the, the thing I had in my favor with that physio degree, one of the things we learned pretty early on was you know, what they called the 10,000 hour rule which is how long does it take to become good at something? How long does it take to, you know, once you become good, how long does it take to become really good? Then how long does it take to become world-class? Um, and there were different theories around there. You might have, you know, one guy had written a book called The 10,000-Hour Rule. So he was, his argument was it takes 10,000 hours of really dedicated, focused, specific practice to become world-class at something. So for me, I guess that just set my expectation that, you know, I'm not going to start in this sport as a 20 or 21-year-old and be a world champion by next spring. This is, you know, I'm playing the long game here. So it, it was good for me to understand that and also understand how fitness adaptations work. It just takes time. So I was still inconsistent for a while, I think, but certainly my best, I, I guess the, the difference between my best and worst was still quite large, but my best was getting better and was becoming competitive. And I mean, I know I started winning races... I won my first open or elite race pretty much in 1995 and, and you know, I ended up winning one every, at least one pro race every year for 25 years, which is a long run when you think of it. 
the difference was at the end, there was a lot more wins and just the performances were, were a lot more consistent. They were always within a small variance of each other. So, you know, early on, I, I had a few good wins. I, I remember winning races up in Noumea, uh, in Phuket. So I was starting to win on the international stage as well. I, when I graduated from uni in 1997, I had planned on working in a hospital as a physio, but I got invited to race in Europe. So I thought, well, why not? I may as well. I mean, my degree's not going anywhere. And so I packed up and went overseas for six months. My, my then girlfriend, now wife, came with me. And we just thought it was going to be an adventure. And, you know, I won some decent races that year. The following year, I won the French Championships. So I guess I was having some success, but I was still very inconsistent. I could, I could win a national championship in France and then turn up to a race and come 25th the, the next weekend. So, you know, I was still learning the nuances of the sport, how to recover well, how to live away from home in a different country and look after yourself, manage your body, all of those things. So, but, you know, I definitely started getting better. I, I think what, for me, the interesting thing was I've always felt I had, I guess, a natural talent. I must have, to, in the end, to win what I won. I must have had some natural talent. But for me, a real breakthrough came, I think it was about in 2000 or 2001, I, I got invited to train with the national team and by chance, I just met this sports psychologist who happened to be there and had a conversation with her. And, you know, we'd learned a lot about the mental side of things in, in life and in sport at uni, but I never really had applied it to my own situation. And, you know, she said to me, athletes, they spend all their day doing all this physical preparation, all this physical training and monitoring their physical progress. And she said to me, so what, what are you doing to monitor and work on your mental progress? to make sure that your mental progress is keeping up with your physical progress. And it was, it was interesting, you know, the penny dropped because I thought, you know, why, why am I so inconsistent? Because if, if you can hit a certain level one weekend, it means you have that level. You can, you can attain that level. So what is it that stops you from doing it each and every time? Is it, are you overtraining? Is it a physical thing? More often than not, it can be a mental thing, a mental block. You get distracted, inexperienced, making silly decisions or mistakes. So, yeah, for me, I, I feel that after that conversation, I just, I understood more the mind-body connection and started working a bit more on the mental game, understanding how motivation is important and different strategies like visualization. And I, I just think I became a more well-rounded athlete. I, I started making national teams more regularly in, in 2001. And, and, you know, that led me to the US, which was a circuit that I'd always seen. In 2002, I went to the US for the, for the first time and those were the races that I mentioned to you that I'd seen on television, you know, a decade before, before I'd even done a triathlon. So, mate, it takes, it takes a long time. I, I just think, you know, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle that you're just slowly putting the pieces together. And, you know, it's, it, you hear people talk about overnight sensation, you know, it, it, does, it just doesn't work like that. There's no cheating the system. You've got to log your hours, whether it's 10,000 hours or whatever it is, but you've got to do your time. And you've got to be vigilant mentally as well and, and, you know, work on your mind game, work on your mind space to make sure that you're always turning up, not just on race day, but in training for every single session, you know, ready to go, ready to make those gains and just, yeah, be on top of things. Mate, a lot of that was, was that the Olympic distance that you're, you're talking about now? And what sparked then to go, well, I'm going to go to the next level and do an Ironman? Yeah, so... So the Olympics came into our sport in the late 90s and, you know, at that, it, it was in Sydney. It made its debut in Sydney. And but that was an eye-opener for me because it, 
I just, I didn't even think I was in the frame. And I probably, I wasn't quite on the level of those guys. Well, I didn't think I was. But a guy who I had trained with and started in the sport with and a guy who couldn't make the Australian junior team, so we then travelled back to Canada because that's where his dad was born, ended up racing for the Canadian team at the Sydney Olympics and winning the gold medal. <laughs> so I, was, <laughs> I remember standing there with my wife and it was one of the best, actually it was one of the best days of my career, watching a good mate do something like that out of the box, so unexpected. And But you realise that, you know, the difference is at the top level, everyone's talented and there's no real secrets to training. It's it's who can manage their body, get through the qualification process, get on the start line and legitimately believe that when the chips are down, they can get the job done. You know, anyone can sit there in a press conference and say, oh, I'm going to win or, you know, it's, it's all lip service unless you truly believe it when it matters most. So, you know, the funny thing about that race is I was, I was in the selection race for the Australian team for Sydney and the week before I got pulled out, the Federation just said, no, they pulled three athletes out and I was one of them and I wasn't super disappointed about it. I actually ended up going to a race the weekend after the selection race and winning it and beating a couple of guys who finished top five in the selection race the weekend before. So for me, the penny was starting to finally drop that maybe I was good enough. And so I set my sights on going to the Commonwealth Games in 2002. So this was the Olympic distance. There was some talk that Triathlon wasn't going to stay in the Olympics. It may be, it was a full medal sport in Sydney, but there was some talk it might be just a demonstration sport or not even in the program going forward. So, you know, at that point in our sports history, triathlon was kind of like golf. It was, it was in the Olympics, but it had a lot of other great events as well. So, you know, as an athlete, you had no shortage of options. But I thought, you know what, I may as well put it on my radar. So the first stepping stone was going to the Com Games in, in Manchester in 02. So I went to... The first selection race for that, which was the Aussie Champs at Mooloolabar, I finished third. I made the train-on squad, or as they called it. So there was a squad of like six or seven male athletes, six or seven female athletes. And then there was going to be like a 12-month process where they narrowed it down to three, three males, three females to represent in Manchester. And had a bit of an up and down year that year, but I uh, got myself in good shape, came third at the Noosa Triathlon, which was about six months after Mooloolabar. And was in yeah, probably career best form heading into the selection races. And unfortunately, I got the chicken pox 10 days before the first race, the first actual final selection. So the, the final selection races, there were going to be two of them. One was Canberra and one was Geelong. And I, I couldn't do either of them. I got sick, so I missed, missed the Commonwealth Games team. And it was heartbreaking because, you know, I, it was really the first time in my career I actually had some direction. And for 12 months, I focused on actually having a goal, having a plan, following it which in hindsight was a great process and it wasn't wasted. That sort of set the blueprint moving forward, I guess. But yeah, you're upset, but what do you do? You just, you know, I had a three or four month period where I couldn't train. I was so sick. Getting, getting the chicken pox, it's a serious uh, virus as an adult. But, you know, I just, I just had, I guess, dusted myself off and, and got on with it. And in the end, out of every sort of disappointment that I had in my career, when I look back, I noticed some opportunity wasn't too far away from presenting itself. So I had a, a really good guy I was working with. He's kind of like a mentor, like an older brother to me. And he was he was an Australian guy, but based in the US. And, you know, when I got healthy again after the chicken pox, he said, mate, why don't you come to the US and race? And at that point in triathlon, the two big circuits in our sport were in the US and Europe. So um, all the races that I'd seen on television, all the big money races and all the best athletes pretty much raced 
one of those two circuits. So yeah, I went over. I went over to the US for the first time and never really looked back. Had some of my best performances towards the end of that year. It's interesting, you know, when you get sick and actually give your body a rest, how you bounce back from it. I think as endurance athletes, we're chronically overtrained pretty much for most of our careers, but you freshen up. And yeah, some of my best performances came after those sorts of layoffs. And yeah, it just, it, it sort of just springboarded me into, and it was funny because a lot of the athletes who had been to the Olympics or were trying out for the Olympics, they used to race on this US circuit. So, you know, you could go and you didn't have to do it through your federation. You could just turn up and enter into these big races. Some of them were invitation only, so you'd have to submit a resume. But as a competitor, you want to race the best athletes. And over on that circuit, I got to race all the best athletes over the Olympic distance. So I, I sort of entrenched myself in that scene for the next few years and you know, I made some really good breakthroughs. 2004, I won these three Olympic distance races they called the Triple Crown in the US, which was Chicago, Boston, and LA, the, the three big city races. And then the following year, you know, Neri and I became parents. Lucy was born. And, you know, even with an eight-week-old, we headed back to the US. And, you know, when she was eight weeks old, I won one, probably the best performance of my career, I think. One of the biggest wins of my career it was a, an Olympic distance race invitation only live on NBC and at the time it was the highest prize person in the history of our sport it was a it was a quarter of a million US dollars and it was a unique format they invited the 20 who they considered the 20 best guys the 20 best girls and then they had what they called the equalizer format so they had some number cruncher who, who'd run the numbers for all the Olympic distance races for 12 months and he'd look at the average differential between the males and the females and he'd give, he'd come up with a head, like they called it the equalizer, and they'd give the girls that much head start. So we'd all stand on the beach, they'd fire the gun, the girls would charge off, and this big clock would count down. And then we'd, we'd start at some predetermined time, it was usually between nine or 10 minutes. And you not only had to beat the guys, or if you're a girl, you had to beat the girls, you had to first across the line got the money. So it was kind of a guys versus girls. It was very cool, very cool race, very cool format. and. Yeah, in 2005, I, 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 took, the, I took the chocolates. Um, I was the first guy to catch the girls. And so, yeah, and, you know, to win that race, for me, it, was, it wasn't just a breakthrough financially. It was more a breakthrough sort of a validation, you know. I mean, the guy who finished second that day was my good mate who was the Olympic gold medalist from Sydney. And the guy who finished fourth was another good mate who was the Olympic gold medalist from Athens eight months before. So... You know, I think that the competitor in all of us, you want to test yourself against those those sorts of people. And I wasn't really doing much of the ITU or the, the draft legal style of the sport anymore. I found my niche in the US. I didn't have to deal with national federations or I could just go and do my own racing. And But I still got to race the best people. So for me, it was the best of both worlds. And, you know, I was starting to attract some good sponsorships and understanding that being an athlete is... You know, a professional career is like a business. Once you get sponsors, you have other stakeholders in your career. It's not just about you anymore. You know, you have other people who have a vested interest. And, you know, it was a good learning curve. And I had, I had some good people who took me under their wings. That was a, for me, those years in the US were great to develop the sporting side of things, but also the business side and the sponsorship side of things. And, you know, that that's, it's interesting because it's, even at that point, I hadn't done any long course racing, even though Hawaii was the race that I'd originally seen many years before. But um, in 2006, 
again, with the restructuring of our sport, um, you had Olympic distance world championships and you had the Ironman world championships, which were in Hawaii. But one of the most popular distances is the half Ironman. So it's a four hour race. Olympic distance is kind of like a two hour event. Ironman's roughly eight hours. Half Ironman's about a four hour event. And a lot of races were, were that distance. It was a very popular distance, but there was no actually official or officially sanctioned world championship until that year. So they, they put together a global circuit and it culminated with a race that was uh, going to be the first ever or the inaugural world championship for the half Ironman distance. And, you know, again, I just, after the big money race in the US in, in 05, I I wanted to chase some titles, so I set my sights. It was announced shortly after that, so that became my plan for the next 14 months. I worked towards that race in Florida, qualified earlier in the year in 2006 at the St. Croix race and went over there um, and won my first world title. After being a pro athlete for a decade, you know, I'd had a few top fives and top tens, but that was the first time I actually broke the tape. So. I guess I know, I think a pivotal moment for me in my career and also importantly, you know, that was my pathway to Hawaii because not only was it world title, but they announced that the the winners, male and female winners of the half Ironman World Championships would automatically qualify for Hawaii the following year. So, you know, after being in the sport and racing at a high level for a decade, I finally could see the path pathway to the race that really got me into the sport and that you know, it was always floating around in the back of my mind that, you know, I, of course I'm going to get there. Uh, I didn't know when. I'd found a niche at the shorter distances. I seemed to be very good at them. I was really, it wasn't that I was performing well. It was more that I just enjoyed the, the short, hard racing. I seemed to have some natural speed. But, yeah, it's funny how things just fall into place and those stepping stones, the, the dominoes just, yeah, that first domino fell and then I just had a pathway to get to Hawaii. So at the ripe old age of 33 or 34, I debuted, I debuted on the big island. Yeah, so that was, my, that was my pathway to get there. And, mate, what's the Hawaiian Ironman like? Like I know I've watched it myself. I know people that have done it. But how tough is it? It's incredible, you know. It's, when I first saw it on television, I just thought it's ridiculous. This is a ridiculous event for ridiculous people. And then I started and I got in the sport and I understood the challenge of the sport and I started training with a few few guys and girls who were doing the longer distance. And it was so impressive, the, the physical training, but also the mental toughness they had to go out and, and train in any conditions and, and to compete in those sorts of conditions. It's oppressive over there. I mean, you've experienced it. And... I think one of the best things I did was go over there in 2006. Actually, when I was preparing for that half Ironman World Championships, I did a two-week training stint in Hawaii on the way over to Florida and, and trained in Kona. And, mate, that was such a beneficial exercise. You know, I mentioned some of the mental strategies, some of the things I used to do, visualization and all of those things. It was, it was very good for me to get to Kona and just swim swim at the pier there where the race is, right on the Queen K Highway at the exact time of the day that the race is on. Feel the heat, feel where the wind comes from, when the trade winds blow, how the wind shifts direction, how it blows through the saddles in the volcanoes. I, sp- I, sp- I logged so many hours on that highway, biking and running. I felt so at home. So when I did finally race there a year later, I, it just felt I'd been, it was so familiar to me. But it is hot and humid and I did 
a lot of heat acclimation. I used to get in the sauna and, you know, do all those things to try and stimulate those physiological changes your body needs to operate in that heat. And you, you just, you know, when you, when you land at Kona Airport and the plane pulls up on the runway and you just walk down the stairs, that, that heat and humidity hits you and you just think, wow, oh, what have I got myself into, you know? And seven days later, I'd, I'd ease myself into the training there and I'd, I'd already done a lot of acclimation, heat acclimation. And yeah, it's like anything, you know, you just prepare your body and your mind for the challenge and it becomes second nature. I mean, I didn't think of it. I didn't think of it in terms of how hard is this. I thought of it more in terms of what do I have to do to get through it? What are the things I can do? There's some things I can't control, but there's a few things I can. And a lot of that's my physical preparation, my mindset, always sinking the glass half full. You know, I never thought how hot this was. I just kept thinking, well, there's certainly things I know that can help me in this heat, keeping my core body temperature down. And I just have to be so disciplined and do all of them. So I sort of came at it from that standpoint and, to be there and experience the atmosphere of that race is just incredible. You know, I remember getting there the first year and I'd been training in Colorado at altitude and I had, uh, again, this is where a coach would have been handy. I had no coach. So I thought, (laughs) should I stay at altitude until two weeks before and then come down or should I come down to sea level four weeks out and get more used to the heat and humidity? I mean, Boulder's hot, but it's a dry heat. So... We were going to come go to Kona four weeks out and I, I was just enjoying the training in Boulder so much. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I think we'll stay at altitude right up until two weeks out. As it turned out, our landlord had rented our place out. So we had to, we had to leave, couldn't extend the lease. And I said to Neri, my wife, what, what should we do? Maybe we could go to San Diego for two weeks or, but then that's uprooting. I mean, we had a young child as well. Lucy was two. I thought, why don't we just go straight out there, go straight. We were able to get accommodation out there. I loved the training out there. I'd been out there for that two weeks the year before and flew out there. And I remember everybody messaging me and people like Mark Allen, who'd won Hawaii six times saying, you're crazy, don't go out there. That's the biggest mistake people make. You know, they they run their race before the race. And so I just got out there and was, was really careful not to do that. I made sure I was sleeping a lot. I was only training in the middle of the day occasionally, doing all my training early and late, having ice baths twice a day. Um, you know, I had a nice vest. I took all these different props and things with me. I was just getting a massage. I got a massage every single day. I was really focused on the recovery. And, you know, I went there, I went there, I guess, confident, but it's funny how your confidence can be eroded, you know. Race week comes around, everybody starts turning up. You get all these fit specimens walking around, you know not an ounce of fat on them and a lot of athletes are more confident they're being vocal in the media and it was my first time there so I, I was just really keeping to myself and but I went there with high hopes certainly that first year I, I, a lot of the guys who they were considering or talking about in terms of being the favorites were guys that I was beating regularly at the half Ironman distance that's a little bit different but um, certainly I would get the better of those guys more times than not so I thought you know if if they're the favorites, I've got to be in the conversation somewhere. So I sort of had that mindset. But then race week, I read into Greg Welsh, who's a, one of my idols, probably the guy who got me into the sport when he won Hawaii in 94. He'd become a role model, a mentor. He took, had taken me under his wing. Had, I'd done a lot of training with Greg. He was, I guess it'd be like a, a young tennis player 
hitching their wagon to Federer. It was like I, I hitched my wagon to Federer. You know, he was my Federer, and he was so gracious and and understanding and so just great at giving information. And I hadn't seen much of him that year. I'd, I'd spoken a little to him earlier in the year about preparing for that race and turned up in race week and saw him. He was working for Oakley and Oakley were one of my sponsors. So I had to go and see him early in the week. And he was like, now don't get your hopes up too high, man. Everyone, it takes them five or six years to do well at this race. And I was like, oh, and I'd been hearing that all year. Every interview I'd done people were, and I'd tried to block it out. But when you're, mentors and role models and people you look up to say something like that it, it sort of it lands a little differently to just just someone in the media with a throwaway line you know so I'm like oh maybe I am setting the the bar a bit too high and and then later in the week I ran into Paul and Yubi Fraser the great athlete from Zimbabwe who'd won Hawaii eight times and was now working in the media and hadn't seen Paula for about two years and first thing she said to me was geez, you're looking skinny. You're too skinny. You've lost too much weight. I think you've lost all your strength. And I'm like, really? And I had lost a lot of weight, but I was never the kind of athlete who was jumping on the scales. I just thought if, if I'm smashing out the training and feeling strong, I mean, I was, I was pumping thousands of calories into my body every day. Three great meals, protein shakes. Um, yeah, I was, I was making, for me, for me, eating was never about hitting a number on the scales was about hitting targets in training, feeling strong, um, that, that sort of thing. So I felt strong, but again, when someone you look up to says something like that, it can, can undermine your confidence a little bit. So my mindset went from, I'm sort of in the mix here to maybe I just need to dumb my expectations down a little bit. And it's funny, you know, you know, the old saying, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Um, because when the, when the race rolled around and I sort of, it became obvious I was going to get on the podium, you know, two thirds of the way into the race or get close to the podium. I kind of look back and feel like I almost re relaxed and felt job done, you know, because that's, that's going to be a huge success. Everyone, I mean, all these people I looked up to think, you know, I'm probably going to take five or six years to get on the podium. And that's what it takes most athletes, you know? And so I, I also had this sort of mentality. Why me? Why should I be the guy who comes here and breezes through the first year? And in the end, I, I did get second. And the guy who won, Chris McCormack, deserved to win it for sure. It was his seventh, I think it was his seventh go around there and he'd had, a, he'd had a few tough years. So he got a lot of experience. He deserved that win. What I learned from that race was, I mean, that was one of the fittest uh, periods of my life. I don't think, I don't know if I'd ever been that fit again, but if, if, your, if your mindset and mentality is not where it should be, it doesn't matter how fit you are, that mind-body connection strong. The mind rules the body. It, you know, if, if you start dumbing down your expectations or watering them down based on whatever reason, maybe what others say or whatever, that, that's what, you know, you, you get what you deserve in the end. So I, I think that was a good lesson for me. I, I think what I took out of that race was, and then I saw, I saw Chris at the finish and how, how just how wrecked he was. Um, and, and I thought, well, that's what it takes to win here. You know, I remember crossing the line and Neri said to me, wow, I mean, was it as hard as you thought? You know, you don't. You look like you could almost run a bit further, or you know, you don't look as spent as I, you know I thought you'd look. And I was so, I guess, conservative, worried about that impending explosion that everybody talks about. And you know, and in hindsight, I don't think it was a bad thing to be a little bit conservative that first time around. So, you know, these are the lessons you learn, and then these are the things that you can only learn by going through them. So, I guess for me, the good thing was I, I took I took those lessons. 
and move forward. And, you know, I was able to win the next two years there. And I just understood how much more I could push my body. Now, from there, all sportsmen at the elite level get to the point where you start fading away from that and, and people retire and from um, the elite level. When you came to that point, how tough was that? Oh, it's very tough. And I think, mate, someone once said the best quality you can have in life is self-awareness, understand yourself for better or worse. I mean, we're all different, you know. And I think I, what I understood at that point was I couldn't just leave the sport cold turkey. I, I Physically, I felt I could still compete at the longer races, but, you know, by that point, I, you know, the point you're talking about, I had three children. I'd been on the pro circuit for over two decades. Nary, my wife, had just just been incredible. I mean, just had supported me, put her career on hold so we could do all of that. And, you know, it's, at some point I thought, is this getting too selfish? I mean, what's one more Hawaii? What's one more world title? What's one more big race win? I mean, more or less. I mean, is that something I need to strive for? Is that just a personal selfish endeavor now? Um, and and that, that were the things that I had to work through mentally for sure. But I knew I couldn't go cold turkey from the sport either. So I stepped back from the longer racing my, my body just wasn't able to withstand the demands of that sort of long training anymore. And, and I could have got myself in shape, but it would have required physio, massage, dry needling, just would have become, become a 24-7 obsession again, which had been for a decade. And I just felt it was getting too selfish. So also understanding the business side of things as well, you know, it was eye-opening because a few of my sponsors, you know, were, were very anxious for me to, you know, your partners can leverage the association in a lot of different ways. When you win, that's that's great for them. But also I think they can, they want to roll you out at conventions and expos and appearances and different things like that, which are things you can't do when you're just training for that sort of an event. So I remember having a conversation with one of my sponsors and I'd, I was well, I was talking about a performance I had that I didn't, I'd underperformed and I wasn't happy about it. And I was sort of half apologizing to them you know, I was getting so busy with everything that was going on and they were like, oh no, we're, we're over the moon. We've, we've sold more product than ever. And that's when I sort of understood that goals are sort of, they need to be perfectly aligned. My sponsors, obviously, it wasn't that they didn't want me to win, but their main goal was to sell stuff. My main goal was to win and or to perform at the level I knew I was capable of and hopefully win. And yeah, so you sort of get to a point, you understand the business side of it. I can still be valuable to these people, even if I'm not racing. So I guess that helps a little bit with the transition, mate, but, but it's very hard because from the moment I was 20 or 21, it, it had been my life, my professional life was about performance, the next session, recovery, checking all the boxes. So many sacrifices are made. It's all you think about. So many other people had invested in my career as well. So you're so indebted to them. You know, motivations change. You know, I... I was always motivated, as I said to you, just to get the most out of myself. That was from day one right to the end as well. I just wanted to be a better athlete than I, I had been the day before or the year before. But as you as you grow, you know, I'd like to think that I've got a little more wisdom and, you know, I became a husband and a father. So, you know, I was motivated by my family and what they had sacrificed. And then I just thought they'd sacrificed enough. They'd sacrificed so much with the homeschooling and, and everything else. And, but it is a tough transition because, you know, people always say you don't want to have your whole identity tied up in what you are as an athlete. 
but it, it that's how you get rewarded. That's how the positive re- or the negative reinforcement comes. If you do well, people are praising you. If you don't, you're getting criticized. Now, that aspect of it was neither here nor there to me. I mean, I, I think when on that, you know, the, the sort of the, the public scrutiny in the media, you're never as good as people say you are and you, you're never as bad as they say you are either. You're usually somewhere in the middle. But yeah, I don't know. I just think that when you win, you, you you get the prize money and the sponsorships and that gets rewarded and that, that sort of feedback loop just feeds you and that drives your behaviors and your mindset as well. You know, that sort of winning mindset, that performance mindset that the winners and the champions in sport and in business have. And it's hard to sort of overnight just sort of unravel all of that. So, mate, it's a hard transition to work through. You need to have good people around you when you're negotiating that transition. And again, that's I think that's the one thing I did best throughout my career surround myself with good people and for me that started at home with my wife with Neri the support she gave me emotionally but also she knew the sport well and she just knew me well she just became she I wouldn't say she wasn't an expert in triathlon she got she knows the sport better than most people but she was an expert in me so she knew me well so that was my I guess core support but then extended family mentors managers training partners you need good people around you and you need good people around you when you transition post-career as well because I think there's there's def- definitely challenges there where you you sort of lose you have a, that sort of a void of passion and purpose that you've had your whole career that drive that structure suddenly that's gone and you need to replace it with something and just somewhere where you feel like you're adding value each day um, whether it's to, to your own life or your family's life and and professionally as well so yeah, it's, a, it's a tough transition but if you've got good people around you I think you can you can navigate through it well, mate, at the end of the interviews, I do a little segment called Five Fun Facts. So I'm, I'm going to run this for you, but I'm going to throw these questions and you can answer them however you want. Here we go. The first one, what are you most proud of? Most proud of my family. Most proud of Neri and the kids, yeah. Who is the messiest person you know? Probably my brother. He's definitely the messiest eater. If you're if you're sitting next to him while he's having a bowl of spaghetti, you're getting half of it. You're getting the bolognese <laughs> and some noodles. What would you name your boat if you had one? Well, mate, we do have a boat. We've got a little tinny with nine horsepower on the back, and it's called – she's called Lucia after our first daughter, Lucy. What was the funniest way you have ever been injured? Mate, I've got a good story for this one. In 2005, Lucy was born – Two weeks later, I had a race up in Japan and went up there. It was a World Cup race. And all the boys, we went up as the Aussie team. All the boys knew I was a new dad. So after the race, we had a little bit of a wedding of the head. And as you do in Japan, we went to a karaoke bar and we just took over this place for like 12 hours of singing. Long story short, I lost my voice for about three months. Um, But it it came back. And then about eight months later, I lost it again completely and it didn't come back. And I ended up having to go to see a throat specialist. They put the camera down and I'd sung so aggressively and so boisterously, I guess, and so loud, I'd burst all these blood vessels and develop nodules on my vocal cords, which had to be cut off, surgical repair. And in the the medical (laughs) notes, the doctor had written karaoke injury. So (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic, mate, classic. What's something your brain tries to make you do and you have to will yourself not to do it? 
I repeat myself. I repeat myself a lot. My my wife's always telling me, my manager used to tell me, my daughter drives her crazy. She said, I just repeat myself a hundred times. So I'm trying to just say things once. <laughs> Great answers, mate. Craig, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure watching your career over all these years and, and coming in and, and talking about tough times and as well as the great times and your whole journey, mate. It's a respectable career and a magnificent one. Mate, thanks for having me on. I've got to say, I feel like I know you personally. My youngest daughter, Lani, we watch Bondi Rescue every night. I know a couple of the boys personally. Uh, my son, Austin, and I, Met Harry's up in Noosa a couple of years ago, and we know Reedy, and I know Clipper, I know Clint Kimmons. So, uh, mate, I appreciate you having me on. It's been an honour. Thank you. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got Kerbox. Welcome, mate. How are you? Hey, Hop. What's doing, brotherhood? Mate, you know we get a lot of lost kids at the beach over the years, so I thought I'd bring up a story that you know very well, and it's the story about the mother yelling out, Jennifer. Oh, God. If she would have sung out, Jennifer, Jennifer, one more time, I was going to strangle her. Like, it was the, like the most painful thing. If you remember, oh, we were sitting on the water's edge, right? And as you know better than anyone, yeah. we always scope along the shore, right? So we knew yeah. there was no one. If they're going to drown, they're going to drown right on the shore because they can't swim. Yeah. So we knew – perfectly well that there was no way that this young Jennifer <laughs> was was in trouble. But this lady was just going mental. Jennifer! <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we were all going one way, right, because we thought, okay, we, we've got to go to the south end because that's the most dangerous, right? Mm. And I said to the boys, I said, listen, spread out, everyone have a look, and, and they said, box, there's no way in hell that we, we, we haven't missed it. And I said, I know you haven't missed it, and I know that, and you know that too. Like, the boys would never miss that. And I was going, what are we going to do? And then you, you ask, you just <laughs> stroll down the beach, right, and you go, okay, you guys are all going that way, skateboard ramp, south corner, blah, 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 and you just go, you know what, I'm going the opposite way. And we go... Where the hell's Hop going? And you've just, <laughs> you've pinned it towards North Bondi. And I go, yeah. I said to the boys, what the fuck's Hop doing? <laughs> and they go, is he upset? And I go, no, he's not upset. I'd know if he's upset, he'd tell me. And I go, okay, let's follow him because he's obviously onto something. And you just, you can take it over here because you know what you did. <laughs> oh, well, I walked down, so I wanted to leave you with the mother who was yelling out, Jennifer, oh, every five Jennifer, minutes. Jennifer, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, I'm going, oh, my God. Beatty was like, Beatty was losing it. <laughs> yeah. And then well, you just, you turned up and I went, oh, right. okay, here we go. <laughs> Well, I thought, I suppose uh, you guys were going south, so I thought that was covered. And I thought, well, where would a young kid go? And I thought about the little baby's pool, you know, the kids' pool down at North Bondi. And, you know, and a lot of kids are playing along the beach and, and digging little castles, sand castles. And we well, got Mr. Whippy down there too, haven't you? Yeah, well, it's Mr. Whippy in the corner. So a lot of kids, yeah, yeah. you know, like to get down towards that end and try and uh, get an ice cream as well as play in the sand and, and, and play in the uh, kids' pool. So I headed down that way, and that's when. Uh, as I was going down, I saw this little girl and thought, geez, this looks like it could be Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember, 
I remember we were just going, oh, Paris just blown us away. <laughs> we all went one way and you went the opposite way and then you go, oh, I've got Jennifer. <laughs> we just went. I remember Whippet and I just, and I think Maxie, we just shook yeah. our heads and Beardy were going, only Hopper. Everyone went one way and you went the other way and I go, what made you go that way? He goes, because you idiots went that way. So I thought I'd go the opposite way and you found her. And I'll never forget it, mate. It was one of the – like, people don't realise, like, kids get lost all the time at the beach, yeah. which is understandable, but the thing is, first thing I think of, they've drowned or blah, 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 which is not ever going to be the case. Yeah. Then you got to worry about people abducting them or taking them away or in the toilet, you know, and that, and that to this day, that, that stuff happens. But, you know, you, you'd panic, I'd panic too, but the thing was, <laughs> we all went one way, I think there's five <laughs> or six of us, and you just... Casually walk down the beach, like, yeah, all right, no worries. You guys go that way, I'm going the other way. <laughs> Next minute, you found out we just all looked at each other. <laughs> Only fucking hopper. <laughs> well, I thought I'd just have to do the opposite to you, blokes, because I thought, well, oh, mate, if all these just... lunatics are going one way, I might as well go a different way. I just laugh because the thing was, like, I go. How do you just pull that off? And, <laughs> and then uh, I think uh, Reedy goes, that's why he's the boss. <laughs> I went, asshole. <laughs> Probably more luck than better judgment, but, uh, yeah. yeah, mate, it's uh, put a, a little bit of common sense in there, I suppose. Oh, mate, it just, you know, like I think you just thought outside the square and you, as you said before, you go, okay, all these guys are going one way. How about I just go the opposite way? And that was the right call. Right, Boxer, thanks, mate, for stopping into the beach shack and uh, another great story. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.